Welcome to Solution Focus Possibilities Podcast. We want to help you have more productive conversations in whatever area of work or life you find yourselves in. What better way to do that than to invite you into our own conversations as we discuss our solution-focused practice, our different experiences and findings. We hope you find this helpful, useful and inspiring. Welcome to our podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to our podcast where we have a very, very special guest that has put on a very, very broad grin. (laughs) So this podcast today is uh, special for two reasons, at least. Uh, One is we haven't got Jamie with us who couldn't make it, but instead of him, but not as his replacement, we have somebody so special to all three of us. Um, that has marked our journey into solution-focused world, really. Um, So we are very, very honoured and grateful to have Harvey Ratner with us, who is a co-founder of Brief, one of the oldest centres and the centres of, with um, the, what what was it, hugest? Is that even a word? (laughs) Hugest? Biggest? (laughs) Biggest reputation of being one of the centres of... um, excellent solution focused practice and training so harvey um you Hi. are connected with each of us in a very separate ways so maybe we could start off by um us sharing how we are connected with you and then uh we'll shoot some questions at you right so you start off showing how you're connected to me so that subsequently people know who to blame for what you're doing <laughs> <laughs> absolutely exactly he's figured it out He's figured out a plan all along. Rumbled us in the first two minutes already. <laughs> that yeah. is very typical of Harvey, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so Greg, Greg, how have you met Harvey? I met Harvey in Essex, the wonderful county of Essex, um, on one of the many, many days that Harvey has been out to Essex to do training for the, the DBIT staff there. And it was, oh gosh, it was probably like nine nearly 10 years ago now probably mm. oh, that's a long that makes me feel a bit old harvey i'm not gonna lie <laughs> um wiser just i'm wiser now but yeah i think it was very much a and it was early days of people getting learning about solution focused practice and i think it was you know that social work context and uh, i think ben you mentioned this earlier and it was kind of those the the whole range of people saying Oh, this is so amazing. This is great. I can't, I'm going to go, I'm writing all these questions down. I can't wait to go try them out. And then you had a lot of other people in the room saying, you can't use this. You can't do this with these people. Like we have to worry about the risk. And what about this? And what about that? You can't just ask them what they hope to get from talking with us. We have to do all these other things. And Harvey just took it in a stride and kept going and saying, well, yeah, you can do that. And you can do this. And yeah, I think that was, that was the start there that I, I was probably the contemplating things in the middle of that group to kind of write down all my questions thinking it, it sounds good. I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. And we'll, we'll see where, where it takes me. I'd, I'd much rather be doing this than some of those other things. I've tried those other things before and they haven't worked so well. So let's give this a shot. And then, yeah, I was hooked. Okay. That's where it all began. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, my, mine was similar. So my first ever taste of solution-focused practice was uh, training delivered by Harvey also in Bedford. Um, in a, I, I remember it being in a really bad kind of echoey hall mm-hmm. with people walking around. I remember feeling yeah. sorry for Harvey and thinking, oh, this is terrible, like just noise everywhere and no one could concentrate. I remember, um, yeah. yeah. And then we moved, moved somewhere else sort of last minute to try and... Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah similar stuff I mean um, the falling out after that training was magnificent it was it was you know one of the most divisive trainings ever um, in terms of you know like Greg has already explained you've got some people going what on earth was that about like you can't you know of course clients are resistant and of course you know some clients lack the capacity to change and and then other people, um, myself included, absolutely loving it. And it was, um, yeah, it was it was really interesting, the kind of fallout of that. Um, and, you know, certainly one of the things that I remember poignantly was that idea that, um, you know, if a piece of work with someone doesn't go brilliantly or the outcomes aren't as great as we'd hoped, then actually, like, the, the weight of that or the responsibility for that falls on our shoulders as the practitioner rather than um you know blaming the client as being resistant right. or you know not being capable yeah. and uh you know i remember that be sparking heated discussion amongst mm. uh, team members mm. and it's always stuck with me how um uh, i guess just like how uh, bold your stance was on that and sort of unshaken you know there was no there was no wiggle room on that mm. top, that point Mm, right. uh, that's maybe something yeah it'd be something i'd be interested to sort of hear, hear about a bit later on in this mm. to kind of comment on that mm. yeah right good thanks and Harvey, you were my first teacher as well so first um course leader uh, at brief that was now seven years ago time does pass very quickly and it's thanks to you and your teaching style that made it so accessible because the ideas were, as you were always emphasizing, very simple and even too simple, but you made them so simple to understand also. And the course, I, as I remember, because I took another course uh, soon after with Chris, and that was a completely different story. So I was really, really pleased that you were the first one because you made it so clear. And there was a nice mixture of everything, discussion. We could ask you questions. We could raise our doubts. We could say, what? And you took it, you took it seriously and you acknowledged and it was really, really great learning experience. So can't thank you enough that you were the first one to um, well, land with and then uh, got us all hooked. <laughs> all right, well. Thanks, guys. So we so we quit now. <laughs> so now, hang on, Harvey. Uh, given that you've been teaching for thirty plus years, right? Yeah. So how have you decide what sort of a teaching style you want to um, employ and and pass on to? Gosh, teaching style. My goodness. Um, well, I, I. I mean, I. I I haven't worked on a style at all. I, I I teach as I am. I think. I mean, that mouse just sounds sort of inge- uh, disingenuous, but I think um, you know how you've described things about me in terms of being willing to listen to people's questions and take them seriously. 
um, try not to argue with people, but see where they're coming from. You know, that's what I, that's, I suppose, how I like to respond in discussions to people. Um, and I'm not trying to put on a performance. Um, I've certainly seen presenters who want to, you know, there's got to be a, there's got to be jokes, there's got to be this, there's got to be that. And there's, you can see people trying quite hard to make an impression. And I don't feel that's what I'm trying to do. I, I'm quite, you know, I just, I suppose, I see myself as quite a serious um, kind of, well, I say reserved sort of person. I'm not, I'm not a performer. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I measure my, my presentations, my workshops are probably quite low key compared with some other people I could mention. Um, but uh, that's, that's my style. That's my personal style. I don't work on it at all. I really don't. I really don't think, oh, with this group, I need to do X or Y. I just do what I do. And some groups obviously do respond and others, I can see it's not working. They want something and they'll say it sometimes in feedback and stuff. They wanted to go quicker or they wanted more of this and less of that, the usual sorts of things groups say. But um, um, so, you know, I know it works for some people and others want something a little bit more razzmatazzic, but everybody's different. But I couldn't do razzmatazz. I mean, I just know that. Because so <laughs> yeah. none of the three of you, you were taught solution focus, you were self-taught. So then at some point you decided that you want to pass this knowledge on. So how's this transition happened? How did you start? Um, thinking about okay how do we actually teach solution focus to others who have um no clue because it was a new thing then well, i think um it was a coming together of factors um firstly the fact that i suppose we were the first group in britain to take the approach on lock stock and barrel and really try and practice it as a group research outcomes all that so we really felt we'd found something that worked extremely well in the UK and we wanted to let people know about it so there was that just that sense we've got something here we're not going to just keep it to ourselves but also we came from a background of, of teaching um, Evan and Chris had both been teaching in the family therapy world for quite some time already um, I was the new the new kid on the block so I had much less teaching experience but I had some um, and I quite liked the idea of trying to you know run workshops and and very early on, we knew that solution focus, going back to what you said earlier about it being quite simple, we realized that it's about developing practice exercises when you're teaching. Because if you just put the ideas out there, you'll get the people saying, oh, I like it, or no, I don't like it, that's it. You know, but you, to encourage people to try it out and see how it might work for them. Um, and we knew from our family therapy trainings, um, with the Institute of Family Therapy back then, that um, we, we knew how to develop exercises. So that became the engine that drove the trainings to get people, invite people, sorry, that would be Evan's word, invite people into doing exercises and trying things out. And, um, and that, yeah, so it was very, the idea of, in a sense, advertising courses as being very practical both from the point of view, you will get something out of this that will be practical to you in your work, but also the workshop itself will be practical. I think that became, um, yeah, that, that's, that's been key to the training ever since. And the other thing I would say is that we were lucky because we were working uh, in a place called the Marlborough Family Service in the NHS, no longer exists, but we had access to videotape. So we were able to record sessions with clients who were 
obviously agreed to it and uh, with their permission to use them for training. So the other sort of plank, I would say, uh, alongside the training exercises was being able to show the actual work because then people, I mean, it's not going to stop people being skeptical, but if they're actually seeing what's happening, then they can see real clients, not actors, but real people responding to these questions. Um, and that started to help encourage another aspect of how practical the workshops could be. So I think those two things, for me anyway, Evan and Chris might have some other things that add to it, but I think the practice exercises alongside actual um, case material, real, real case material, was um, there from the start of our training career. Wow. In social focus, yeah. What was it that um, you, you kind of said earlier that um, you got to a point where you thought we've got something here, we've got something, and we want to share it? Um, what was that moment? Like when when did you think, you know, I've really got, or we've really got something here, and actually, you know, I I believe in this stuff, and this is worth sharing. What what was that moment, and what kind of convinced you guys that yes, this is worth um, settling, this is worth going for and sharing? Well, um, I'm trying hard to remember, because um, <laughs> obviously there must have been a moment, but um, I do remember in, God, dare I say, 1989, um, that Chris and I offered to present a workshop at the Association of Family Therapy Conference that, that summer. And um, so we put forward, this was actually, I think, our first kind of public venture with Solution Focus. So I guess at the beginning of 89, we'd been doing throughout 88, we'd been trying out Solution Focus as a team mm -hmm. and getting more and more interested in how we were learning the techniques and how valuable they might be. So the idea of actually going out there and sharing it, um, I don't remember a particular sort of moment, aha, this is it. It was really, yeah, but there seems to be something really we're very excited about by this. We need to try it out. We need to put it out there. And the workshop, went down really, really well. Um, I remember we prepared, God, how we prepared for that workshop. Chris has never prepared for a workshop like it ever since. Um, you know, every sort of minute of, you know, which tapes we'll show and which exercise, and what, oh, what, 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 every minute of it. I don't know how long the workshop was, I can't remember how to, I have no idea. And um, it, it, yeah, it went down very, very well at the, um, at the conference. So, that was very encouraging. Yeah, we put it out there, people like it. By the way, uh, that's where we met Richard Golner, the uh, yeah. publisher of BT Press, who got very <laughs> interested in us and what we were doing. And that sort of started a very important relationship leading to us uh, through his encouragement to write our, our first book, which came out to coincide with our inviting Stephen Shazer. Because after that workshop at, at the association, I think it must be just after that, we actually reached out to, to Milwaukee to the Brief Family Therapy Centre there and said to Stephen and Sue, how about coming over and presenting on Solution Focus in Britain? And, um, and Richard said, go on, write a book in time for their visit, which was the following May, 1990. Wow. Write a book in time for their visit. So don't wait for their visit, but write a book in advance of it. Is that right? That's what Richard said to us, get, get on with it. And we had this uh, <laughs> deadline well you know all about this um, <laughs> yeah. so we had this deadline and um it was it was tough but it was we had great fun doing it i don't know how you worked on your book together i remember us having 
Um, well, of course, we could meet um, in those days. We were no lockdown, but we um, we had hilarious times sitting, talking over cases and what material would go in the book. And of course, when Steve arrived, we got out just about, just got the first um, the book published, and uh, we showed it to Steve and said to him, "Would you mind writing a forward for it?" So um, there are out there, I think, some rare, rare copies that don't even have Steve the shape forward on it. <laughs> So uh, they're probably priceless now, but um, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> when Steve said, um, and in his forward, he, he wrote actually quite straightforwardly. He was puzzled. What, what were these guys making of it? Had they really got it? And then he said he read the book, and um, and hey presto, he thought we had. So that was a, that was getting the sort of final. What's the expression? Imprimatur or something? Is that the word? Oh, what are you holding up, Greg? Mine, mine has a yeah. Just mine has the forward from Deshazer. I was just checking yeah, to make that's sure. That's the second edition, isn't it? The, uh, yeah. Ninety-nine, but oh, no. yeah. <laughs> not not quite as valuable that one, Greg. Unlucky. No, no. Not priceless. I'm getting competitive when I get mine now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I remember. I, I think I remember this right, Harvey. That you saying when when you guys were sort of self. Um, well, teaching and, and learning the solution-focused approach from what you read and about about it from the Milwaukee um, Family Therapy Centre, you maybe had some different ideas compared to what you realised when you actually met Steve in person and when you actually saw him working, and maybe there were some differences between the ideas in your head about the approach and then what you actually saw Steve practising when you got to meet him. Mm. Is, is that right? Yeah, I, th I think there was maybe inevitably, I suppose, because we'd only, uh, like Manuel in Forty Towers, we'd learn it from a book, um, <laughs> how to do solution focus. And uh, actually then they came and showed their stunning videotapes of their actual work. Plus, mm. we had a day with Stephen and Sue and they came to the clinic we were working in. Mm. And they spent a day seeing our clients or supervising us seeing clients. Um, so that was an extraordinary immersion in the Milwaukee experience without having to schlep all the way to Milwaukee. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, there were some things. Um, I mean, nothing obviously major, major, but I, I mean, we, we'd we learned about the miracle question and our, our understanding of, well, of it was that it, you know, you develop a, a, a lengthy description of what the next day after miracle would look like. And it was interesting to see that uh, that was not a, a major part of their work. You know, the miracle really was, at that time anyway, and, and later, I think, at different points. I mean, obviously, they tried different things out. But I think, by and large, the miracle question for them was a broad brushstroke sense of what might be different in different areas of their life, and then back to the search for exceptions. So very much an exceptions-based model, and um, which um, you know, was important to us as well. And we certainly were deep into exceptions and scale questions and thinking about the task to give at the end of that. But we had assumed that the miracle question or what we later called the preferred future questions were much more central and important than it seemed to be to Stephen Insu. Um, they also spent a lot of time thinking about the message. So it wasn't just about giving a task, it was taking a break, thinking up a whole compliments message. We had tried all that, we had worked on that, I think even then we were already starting to think, do we want to be so elaborate in the message at the end? Do we need to be so elaborate? Do we need to focus on tasks to the extent that they were 
they were doing um, were questioning things at that point. And uh, so um, but it was a gradual deciding where exactly where we stood. But I think the miracle question was one thing I remember in particular. Yeah, that's interesting. We, I think it's a constant challenge for us is to continue that questioning. I think it's something we we often talk about. We want to keep doing that us, ourselves, also with the practice. And uh, certainly, Greg and I argue a lot. He was fun. Yeah, yeah, uh, all the time. So there you go. <laughs> arguing about what exactly? You got me interested. Oh, the the usual is is best hopes and kind of that that outcome at the from the from the off i think ben ben starts to get these you know it works wonderfully well for ben and i have i have to say that from the beginning um, it's just not i think for me because it it gets these wonderful like lists of best hopes and it's like there's a little like a tiny bit of description in there of what that would look like and then it's more a list of general broader best hopes and then he weaves all of that language into into his tomorrow question and generally I, I'll, I'll kind of latch on to one or two things as soon as i get them and then just move straight into to asking about that and then kind of build from there but i'm like why why are you doing all that work at the beginning when you could do more of the work later on and yeah, yeah that's just i think differences in style but i see it work which is good you know i'm not saying it's it's wrong obviously but i do just yeah Mm-hmm. Horses for courses, I suppose. Right, right. No, it's 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 an interesting discussion about the, the techniques and how far you go in one direction with one technique or the other. And of course, at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference. And mm-hmm. you know, we used to be very interested. Well, we still are, but we don't do follow ups the way we used to. But to be interested in the outcome of working in a particular way, Steve so would would have said that's the only way you can know ultimately. But how you research. A different use of a question like the best hopes I and mean, it's terribly difficult to get at that level of detail of in the research i think mm. where do you stand on that beaver on that best hopes um. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's, that's a very cruel question you're asking people to choose sides <laughs> oh, oh well, that's, um, well, maybe I'm she's sure. got a third way yeah no, that's I'm, true yeah. i'm sure beaver has her own way of doing it you've just got a better way of doing it yeah, which, which Ben, you actually pointed out, haven't you, when it was our first training that we delivered together and I did some group exercise and then you said, oh, yeah, so let's, let's try without that. And I didn't even know that that was my idea. <laughs> so it was actually really great. So the, the setting was starting a group with, uh, without saying what is it that they want, just op- keeping it open as in think of something you'd like to maybe achieve change, see different, mm. and then suppose this started happening, right. which, which wasn't um, from any thinking point, it was just a practicality, not to get um, maybe confused that they need to describe the problem. So it was just simpler to get the group going, but actually mm. Ben took it out and said, hey, <laughs> that's a third way of doing it. So thank you, Ben. <laughs> well, that's, that's beautiful because that's, yeah, that's what they say. I mean, whether it's true or not, who knows? But the story that was told about the origin of the miracle question that Insu was listening to a client say that it would take a miracle to solve their problems. And then she just said, Well, suppose a miracle did happen. And the team listening to her interviewing, I mean, I've heard I heard the story several times over from them that 
it was then the team listening to that thinking that's a great question suppose a miracle happened but she hadn't asked it in that quite that way and she didn't really know what they were going on about later on and they were saying what a great question she thought she was just following the client's lead which is for how so much of solution focus was generated anyway it was learning from clients in that kind of way listening really carefully and building on what they say so uh, ben was listening very carefully to what you were doing <laughs> yeah and then innovation was born without even really being yeah. real having realized that there was any innovation there <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think one of the challenges for us um, is, is this whole question of what are we teaching? What is the model? Um, because people want certainty. They want to know, you know, don't give me two or three different ways of doing this. Just tell me I want it manualized. I mean, the world is moving towards more and more manualized stuff. Um, so what is, what do I do? Tell me specifically what I do. Don't tell me that you did it one, did it this way on Monday and a different way on Tuesday. Yeah. So it's, that's a, a real challenge to how to um, say, yes, there is a kind of default model, so to speak. It's not like it's nothing. It's not a free for all, but and here are certain techniques that are useful. But you have to find your way with what's going to work for you with your clients. And um, so I, I, I try to adopt, I don't know if I'm very good at it on the whole, but I try to adopt a more permissive type of position that these are useful questions here see the video you can see how we use it you don't have to do it that way um and so um yeah it's it's um it's up for up for grabs in that sense um and i think you know i'd hate to think for example that i found something that seemed to work for me say now and you'd come back in five years time and find out i was doing exactly the same thing i mean that would be total totally boring to me and uncreative I mean I have no idea what I'll be doing in five years time but I hope it'll be different in some way not radically different not a different model but something that has built on developed um, and to keep that creativity alive in our work does mean being prepared to accept that there are at least three different ways of looking at something mm. I mean I, I remember I don't know if any of you were there when Louis Kaufman presented a brief about, must be three or four years ago. You were there, Greg? And, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and he described the headline techniques of solution focus, like the miracle question, like scales, as being gimmicks. And I found that very, very interesting. And I, I you know, Louis is quite a sort of challenging and, yeah, like likes to get a you know challenge people thinking get a rise out of them even but so he was pushing it quite hard to call them gimmicks but i think his point was quite clear you know these are just what are the bedrock principles on which solution focus is based and if part of it is about helping people describe a preferred future of some sort mm -hmm. then you know the middle question is just a gimmick for helping the client and you get there it doesn't mean to say you have to do it that way mm -hmm. but as steve the shaves and institute 
pointed out themselves, that becomes more problematic when it comes to research. Because researching the outcome of a model depends on researchers knowing what the model is. Yeah. And so they said, you have to ask the miracle question as a defining aspect of solution-focused practice. If you haven't asked a miracle question, well then how the researchers know this is really solution-focused. So that raises those kind of issues, but I'm less concerned with that myself. I think, you know, solution-focused can be a, a reasonably broad church. Yeah. How broad is up for grabs, up for negotiation, discussion. Yeah. yeah. I think I've certainly found that, in, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, Ben saying, you, that training divides the room sometimes. And I think it's spot on. I think there are those people that, as you say, want that, that manualized version of give me the list of questions that I can ask people to make, you know, to support this change in them. And then there are others that that just turns them off straight away, doesn't it? And they just yeah. say, well, you know, that doesn't feel natural. It doesn't, it's not me to, to use these words and ask these questions. And I need to find kind of my way to do it. And yeah, yeah finding yeah. that balance is, is it a, well, first time, first time we brought Bill O'Hanlon to London, I said to him, um, I, was it 1991 or something? And I said, Bill, um, why don't you ever ask the miracle question? And he said, I don't like formulaic questions. They inhibit my spontaneity, my creativity. Um, and part of me thought he was saying that because he hadn't invented it and he was in competition with Milwaukee. That was very obvious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, anybody knows Bill knows that he is a spontaneous sort of person who uses humor and creativity in a way that um, Milwaukee would have found a bit too wild, put it bluntly. Um, so, um, so that's that's yeah, partly why you know the late lamented, recently late uh, um, departed Brian Cade. You know, he wrote his book on brief therapy with Bill O'Hanlon because they too were both kind of mavericks in the brief therapy field. I'd, I'd say. How, how did you guys keep the creativity alive, Harvey, in, in brief? How did yourself, Chris and Evan, sort of maintain that over the years to keep being creative, to keep trying to do something a little bit different um, all of the time? Um, that's interesting. Um, I think partly because we're very different people. Um, yeah. Obviously, we get on extremely well, but we are very, very different in personalities and what we're interested in. Um, so I think we um, would bring to discussions a bit like it sounds like you do, you know, a sort of um, a willingness to chew things over, challenge each other, question, debate. So I think that, you know, knowing there's a, a good feeling amongst you that disagreeing with somebody is not going to lead to a, you know, people walking out and all the rest of it. So I think that's the first thing, it's just that willingness to challenge um, because we were bringing quite different um, vantage points to it. Um, so, I mean, I'll give a trivial example, but um, I mean, Chris, I loved the miracle question, probably from the day one that he heard about it. He just loved it. Um, whereas I found it a real struggle. You know, I found it a very strange, awkward question. Um, a funny story is that when they, Stephen Insu came in 1990, um, and Insu watched me working with a quite complicated social services referral and I asked a miracle question and when I took a break and we were discussing what kind of ending to the session because it had been quite awkward um, and Insu just told me bluntly I hadn't asked the miracle question correctly 
um, which same as you know when I thought about it since I've sort of wondered why she didn't put it in a more solution focused way you know like <laughs> quite like the way you use the word miracle <laughs> that question of your you know that sort of thing um, but anyway so she uh, and of course that, that ruined me asking the miracle question for the next year you know having, <laughs> having instantly tell you you haven't done it properly mate like yeah. talk about that obviously um, so um, but that's whereas you know Chris would have just that wouldn't have happened. I mean, he just had got it. Whereas I always loved—you'll <laughs> be surprised here. I always love scale questions. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a shock! What, what a shock! <laughs> so, um, whereas Chris used to say back in those days that that, that really wasn't his preference, and I, I imagine he still you know, feels strongly against scale questions. Obviously, as I don't feel strongly against the miracle question, but um, I think I was probably the first one when we really got really deeply into the best hopes question to start to abandon the miracle question because I, I felt that there's no need for the word miracle if you've got somebody's best hopes then you just move seamlessly into what well, I said we've got to call the tomorrow question um, and so I rarely use the word miracle very rarely whereas I imagine Chris still uses it a lot so so there's a sort of differences in sort of temperament of style um, I think that that and I, I don't know why there was a sort of sense of wanting to try different things out. Um, um, you know, why did we introduce the best hopes question? Why did we drop tasks? All the things that have you know, been documented about our, our work over the years. Why did these things happen? And um, you know, it, it, you're asking a question about that process of what went on between the three of us that led to that. We can say, well, there's the outcome. We, we decided this or that, but how did we decide it? And I, that's hard for me to pinpoint now, really. Wow, there's so many things to ask. Well, I've been I, talking I too long. Reflecting what I've just said, a key thing was the willingness, the openness to try out different things. That if yeah. somebody comes up, came up like Chris did with the best hopes question, oh, yeah, let's try it. Let's give it a go. Maybe it doesn't yeah. work. We'll drop it. And there were a couple of things we dropped over the years, and things that stayed in, things that left and were brought back. You know that kind of thing. The willingness to experiment. Yeah. It's, um, you know, you're, I think you're dead without it. So. What were the things that, um, because I, I remember a conversation that I had with yourself and Evan over email around, so what is actually happening here? Why, why does this solution-focused stuff work? And uh, I remember us having a conversation around um, sort of push and pull factors, ideas, and then um, Evan coming in and using the phrase, we're creating a home for possibilities. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm going to throw two questions in at once. So... Um, then, then I'll hand over to Greg. But so, so I'm still curious about that question. So, in your opinion, Harvey, um, what is actually going on? Why, why is it that solution focused is helpful to people? And uh, and then also, what were the core um, things that yourself, Evan, and Chris always held on to and always agreed to? What were the sort of core principles, if you like, that were always consistent throughout? Well, I think the, um, I mean, there's the core sort of um, principles of focusing on the future, what people want in future, um, either in terms of the problem being solved or a later formulation of your best hopes and the work being achieved. Um, so, you know, the future focus and the past focus in terms of focusing on what has worked for people, which I, you know, using the scale question particularly. So I think those things are 
in the bedrock, those two, I'd off, you know, often start teach training saying there's basically two building blocks in solution focus. Um, so I think um, that's always that's always been key. That's always been defining aspects of solution focus for us. Um, in terms of why I think it works, what's going on here? I mean, I don't really have much to add to what you know Evan might say about homes for possibilities. I wouldn't put it in that sort of language, but um, I just think um, you know it's a, it's a conversation that is focused on what people is listening carefully to what people want and what they're good at, and I think or have been good at, and I think um, it's that listening and being with someone. Um, that's something I can't hmm, probably need to think this through, but anyway, I'm going to say it. something I've not been able to um, stop thinking about is the question of the relationship. And um, because Steve DeShays was, was wanting, I think, to make a, a point that the relationship was overplayed in discussions yeah. about counseling and therapy. Yeah. Um, so he was almost determined to be eccentric in the room with the client in terms of his non you know, refusal to do eye contact, his mm. way of talking with, with people. It was almost, almost. I mean, he was a, an unusual character, but I think he played it up to some extent in sessions. And I think his, his message was to the viewer was, you know, I can appear so sort of clumsy and whatever. And look, the client is still getting something from this because it's not about me. Mm. It's not about my relationship. The only thing it was crucially about was listening. And of course, yeah. he was an amazing listener. And he didn't interrupt people. And you know, look at transcripts in the books and so on. And nine times out of ten, the only thing Steve Shade was saying is, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he was listening. And then every now and lob in another fantastic question and then back to mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So um that sort of listening and uh, uh, is is quite in a radical sense, I think, for the, the client to really feel heard. Um, so I, I, but for me, while I take that on board, I think there is something going on between the client and myself in terms of the degree of trust and things like that. Um, and I think it may be a lot less in terms of you know, relationship factors that are a lot less important in solution focus. The emphasis is so much on the words and stuff like that. But I think the way we talk with clients, the way we listen, people look very carefully at you. How are you, how are you reacting to what I'm doing? How are you responding? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I haven't really, I, I don't spend a lot of time pondering those personal things, partly, again, to go back to an obvious point, we're all so different. Yeah. And uh, some colleagues will behave with their clients in very different ways, just like we're talking about differences in teaching styles, but it all can work. Yeah. So um, I can only really focus on what seems to work for me, really, in that sense, my style. Yeah, we had a, a similar conversation with Sarah in the last podcast around relationships. She, in terms of the research with clients with aphasia, um, she was saying they had to acknowledge that there was some degree of sort of relationship building, and, and that was something that the clients appreciated. Um, Greg and Beeble know when we've delivered trainings, lots of participants love um, like catching me out when they watch uh, recordings of sessions because I'll often be mirroring the client's body language almost exactly. 
and they love pointing it out and going aha you are doing it um and i and i say to them i promise you i am not giving a second's thought to my body language all i'm doing is listening to the words that they're telling me and and i guess that if we get that listening right i guess the a lot of the rest of it will sort of naturally follow and we don't actually have to consciously do it i don't, don't know if you'd agree with that harvey that's well, so I, I'm starting to think about it. I, I used to show this tape, um, and as the client is talking, and she says at one point, um, she's struggling to answer um, what would be different tomorrow. She's so, she presents as, well, suicidally depressed. And, she's, and she puts her head in her hand, and she's thinking, trying to think what to say. And I pause the tape at that moment, because I know what people are going to say is, I'll get in first. And I'll say, well, look at, Look at what's happening here, and I'm sitting there with my hand in my, in uh, against my my head like that. So um, we're absolutely mirrored, and you just sit on the picture. I pause it, and there it is. We're both of us in exactly yeah. the same pose. But I think people can see that because it's happened the way it's happened. That I'm not looking at her and think, "Oh, time to put my hand to my face," sort of thing. It's quite obviously just evolved in the conversation. Um, it's a feature of whatever, you know, talk about non-verbal communication, it's part of that communication. So, um, but I'm not deliberately aiming at it, like you were saying. Um, you know, I think it would get in the way for me to start focusing on how I can, but I, but having said that, I don't want to be naive about it. I don't want to be silly. I don't want to pretend that I don't sometimes think how I might modulate my voice in response to something that somebody has said. When somebody's upset, how do I respond to that? Um, I'm going to vary my style and some of it comes totally kind of just spontaneously but sometimes I'm sitting there thinking yeah I wonder how I should respond at this moment and I've got a few seconds to work out how to position myself in that moment so it's it's not totally just just evolving I think there are there is some thinking going on on our part so then you start thinking how the hell do you explain that to people how do you manualize that how do you yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <Awful>. <laughs> maybe that's another book for you harvey oh yeah great <laughs> 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 it's just easier just to say see the shades have said it's not to do with non-verbal and stuff like that and no. just move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well no it takes me back to one of my i think it was one of my i think it was my first first session on the diploma course and it was this mother and daughter and it was one you assessed Harvey and you were very kind in, in in the feedback thankfully which was great and very encouraging um but there was there was a bit of like the non-verbals between them the the young girl I think she was 13 around there she said something I'm assuming to to intentionally kind of wind her mother up and at one point she even said did you like what I said mom and <laughs> But before she said that, she says it and she just kind of glances over and gives her one of those like knowing sort of looks like I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the reaction. <laughs> I didn't mention, I didn't say a word to it whatsoever. And there was that, just that question in the feedback of you didn't, you didn't, you didn't address this, you know, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but why, why didn't you, or why did you like, yeah. and it's that, you know, that whole debate of do we start assuming we know what the, what people are thinking or or do yeah. we, you know, I could use it as a cue to ask a question about, to be like, well, what, what was that about? What did you want your mom to hear about that sort of question, uh, you know, in terms of your answer? Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because just by having having conversations with people, we've all had 
good conversations with people and we've all had probably some awkward ones with people and you notice the difference don't you yeah and i think if you're able to have good conversations and i was writing down when you were talking about relationships because that is always one of the most common things especially from a social care standpoint i think is well we need time we need time to get to know them first and build this relationship and develop before we can ask these questions and actually we know that actually it's more about i think the connection probably we have with people like we don't necessarily have to have a relationship you already have a relationship it what it's kind of what form that takes but if you're able to as you said listen to them and actually connect and yeah have that back and forth then you find a way of working together yeah. and yeah. who who doesn't want to talk about you know if somebody asked you well, what do you what do you want to get from life harvey what do you want to get from you know the next few years kind of thing not that um, clearly you have longer to live than that harvey but it's that idea of like what do you want to get what do you want to get from this like i'm talking about you here who, who's not interested in that yeah yeah right yeah Don't know. but i think we should perhaps just bear in mind this the, the stuff that goes on the research that goes on into the relationship and see if there's anything that we i mean i'm thinking of um harry corman um our colleague in sweden who you, you obviously know and he uh swears by the sort of um scott miller type end of sessions session rating scales um but even one, if one just takes from that to ask a client at the end of the session how was that for you now of course the client can't necessarily feel they can be totally honest about it if they don't didn't like it that's always that factor but just what harry has said is just the mere fact of asking somebody for their feedback on the session um can increase the alliance in some way and um yeah, this has been looked at and researched and why should one just ignore that when if we're adopting a client-centered model it could be of use to just say i'm just curious how this how this was for you and, and if they're a bit unsure you know well how you know if, if i was to do a sort of better job next time how would you know sort of thing and uh, so um, and I, I find that quite interesting i do sometimes say to people then so how, how was that for you mm -hmm. Because it is different, and sometimes we we forget how different it is for people. I had a client the other day say to me, "Your approach is just the complete opposite of any way of thinking I've ever known." Because I just wasn't going into the problem. I just wasn't trying to speculate on the causes of the problem. I wasn't trying to give answers, diagnose an answer. I just kept on asking, well, you know, solution-focused questions, and she found it very, very very strange and she actually said made that comment so um asking her so ask her how was it for you well, it was very difficult it was very strange but it's given me a lot to think about well, probably the best thing one could hope for really position where when we're going out there and we see as you were saying a couple of times more and more needs requests and maybe even mantra to ha to have things manualized uh, 
made more complex. It's really difficult to stay simple and to stay true to simple. And um, even, even with maybe participants, sometimes it happens that they would require more and more and more. And in return, in exchange, maybe uh, being harder to, to earn the trust, I suppose, or maybe uh, take the invite to try exercises. So what, what's maybe helped you um, accommodating different needs, uh, different styles, different demands, and still uh, manage to split the room in two or even more <laughs> and not kind of, yeah, freeze and run away? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that um that people don't, by and large, uh, and maybe this is cultural thinking, particularly of the UK, don't like, on the whole, like kind of evangelical types. Um, and it's very easy when you get very involved with a model of, of anything to become quite kind of religious about it. You know, this is your, it's a cult, this is my thing and, every, my, every, and everybody has to get this, you know, and it's my mission, literally, to get out there and convert people. And I guess I'm very, very, um, skeptical, very, very cautious when it comes to fundamental sort of beliefs. Um, and I, you know, while I've obviously been giving myself body and soul to solution focus, that doesn't stop me still being skeptical about it, still not being sure it's going to work with any particular client um, and um, being ready to learn and change track if need be. So, so I think for my, me, it works to be maintain a skeptical position. And when I hear people being very skeptical of the workshop, it's not so difficult for me to sort of align myself with that and sort of remember how skeptical I was back in the day when we first started going with this stuff. I mean, um, we had the huge benefit of being a team so we could support each other and encourage each other if we had a failure or something um, on my own, just doing it. Would I have been able to have held, held it up in that way or would I have softened it and moved into slightly different areas so to hold more firmly to it i needed support because i, I needed convincing of aspects of it and maybe i still do you know there's still a part of me that is not convinced <laughs> that this has to be the answer it isn't the answer for everything nothing is mm -hmm. so uh, so when people come in a workshop i mean i'm not going to pretend i like it i'm not going to say oh it's great you know give me more give me more sort of thing i mean uh, you know you want to carry on the job and you're worried about how that very negative critical person in the back row is bringing down the rest of the group with their criticisms or negativity you've got to worry about the group but in terms of what they're raising and telling myself when they're being critical they're probably speaking for others in the group who, have, who are not speaking up and therefore they mustn't be ignored they must be and I think Greg I think you made a comment right at the beginning of this about what one might call the both end um, recognizing that when people say, well, they have to do X or Y in their work and saying, that's fine, you must do X and Y and, not but, but and here are some other techniques that might you might find useful. And I think uh, you just, I remember Steve Jason telling me about this, you know, you just start with the idea of the more, if you can make a reasonable case and encourage people to try out some of the techniques, they might just begin to do more of them later and want to continue doing them. So it's a solution-focused principle of focusing what they might do more of, not what we think they should do less of. Mm. Nice. I've got just one more question, if I may. Guys. <laughs> Go for it. So 
having just yeah discussed that and people will be experimenting and questioning and new approaches arising and new paradigms and so forth what gives you Harvey hope after 30 years 30 plus years that SF has great potential of not just surviving but potentially even getting bigger if there is hope <laughs> <laughs> wow um well I'm, I'm I don't know how much hope I have because I I can remember being at a conference at the Mental Research Institute back in 1994 in California and Stephen and Sue were there, but it was a, the old brief therapy model, the Mental Research Institute model of brief therapy, but it was a conference that they'd set up with um, Milwaukee. There were very few of us there who were solution-focused people back then. Um, and Dick Fish, who was you know, one of the team at the MRI, said that they had a discussion about the future of brief therapy and he said he was pessimistic and um, some people say oh that's typical that's in the MRI models sort of a paradoxing effect and so on but he, he didn't wasn't talking about that at all he said he's thinking of the power of big pharma the pharmaceuticals industry that the search for the, the, the pill that's going to make a difference to people's lives and we see it today it's bigger than ever and the pandemic will increase the importance of pharmaceuticals in our lives um, not necessarily bad reasons, of course, to think about the pandemic, but when it comes to mental health, you know, we move closer and closer to the idea that we are all essentially mentally ill. We're on a spectrum and we all need therapy or treatment. We have all been traumatized in some way or other. We're all suffering of PTSD and so on. And I just think that, um, you know, that search for pills. So I think what Dick said back in 94 is even more relevant now. So thinking long term i'm not hope that hopeful for the future of uh, the talking therapies as it were um and i think that the growth of neuroscientific studies and so on the, the idea that they can find scientific ways of adjusting our brain waves um is is going to get bigger and bigger um but i don't think talking ther therapies will disappear completely because people do create crave relationship and talking and realize that pills aren't the answer to everything not yet anyway um, so there is a place and I think I'm hopeful for solution focus having a place at the table bye Ben um, because <laughs> I don't know where he's gone I said something wrong there um, so I think we'll have a place at the table because what is curious for me even today given how long solution focus has been around is how it still is a kind of on the on the outside looking in it hasn't been taken on board as a you know, mainstream CBT style therapy. And there are all, all sorts of reasons we don't need to discuss that now, but I think um, I enjoy Solution Focus's kind of slightly counterculture, um, holding the flag for minimalism and client-centeredness and non-diagnostic and blah, blah, blah. So I think um, I'm still hopeful we'll continue to have a sort of a, um, a voice that will intrigue people, but the long run, I don't know, <laughs> hmm. are you hopeful yeah yeah it reminds me of this moment greg when you and i were taught were walking in frankfurt it was sf trainers conference and it was a moment speaking of moments where we decided that us as a tri trio we are not going to merge 
with anyone who is going to be, say, more popular, more influential politically in the field of therapies and so forth, that we want to stay true to keeping the, the approach mm. simple and not add more stuff to it that it doesn't need, or even if it's cosmetic stuff. And it was a beautiful moment, wasn't it, Greg? Mm, uh, mm. almost like a catastic moment when you say right staying outside but always nudging <laughs> mm, yeah. which uh, funny enough I think that's exactly what Steve DeShazer was was hoping for um into I mean it's interesting how they, they were so <clears throat> such a strange couple and so opposite in so many ways I mean Insu was desperate to see solution focus become a kind of accepted evidence-based mainstream model competing on equal terms with CBT and so on. And I don't think Steve DeShazer was at all interested in that. I don't think he was interested in any form of accrediting solution focus. He wanted it to be on the outside, um, a maverick force for good. And as soon as you start trying to regulate things, um, then you, um, uh, you, you just, it starts to diminish its power and make it rigid. Um, mm. So. Um, Hiya, Ben. Hello again. Welcome back. <laughs> That's my wonderful internet connection. Just means I'm going to have to listen to the podcast back, aren't I? I have to listen to it yes. multiple times. Absolutely. Hear, hear it's the, an uh, absolute gem. Absolutely. <laughs> hear the golden nuggets that I missed. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I mean, yeah, I think I'm still hopeful, Harvey, because it's things like, I mean, what you were saying to us before we got started about the feedback on the book. And, you know, we've had that from other people and we, you know, you hear those stories from people that just say, this has made a difference for me. And I think like you were just given in your previous example, like this is totally different from anything that I've ever, ever had before. And it's, you know, I don't know what it's going to lead to, but I've got things to think about now. And I think knowing it, as you said, it's not going to be the, the fit for every single person and solve every single problem, but it's nice to have the variety. It's nice yeah. to know that other things will work and this is something that will it will suit people because it we've seen it over you know over the years that it will suit people and I would imagine it will continue to suit people or at least that's that's the hope touch wood yeah absolutely yeah yeah I think books like yours are invaluable because this is a slightly new sort of this is a new departure it brings a new and you feel um, to the relevance and use of solution focus. So I think it was a really great start to your writing careers. I know you'll go on to write other things, of course. Um, so. <laughs> and it coincided brilliantly, hasn't it? 30 years after your first book with yeah. the same publisher, how <laughs> it first came out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Amazing. Well, I've enjoyed this. It's been nice to chew things over and be made to think back and some of your questions I hadn't really thought about um, in that sort of way was what was the moment when or what you know, there's those different things yeah. so um, and I love the way some you know solution focus how one thing just leads on to another and you sort of don't know wherever I had to end up over here when I start you know that kind of thing it's uh, it's great and that's that's a part of the nature of solution focus conversations yeah what is, what is the last question for me, Harvey? What, what does the future hold for you? Like, have you got any, what's next to the pipeline? Any any more massive books being written? What's what's next for Harvey Ratner? Well, I mean, um, I, mean I, I, well, I had a, 
Routledge are pushing us and they have been for a long time to do a second edition of the 100 Key Points book. Um, and we've been putting it off and not particularly fussed about a second edition. What, what the hell, go and write a new book. But, um, but anyway, I, I, I've been wondering about that, wondering, looking at the old book, what, uh, that's not that old, but you know, what would one want to change? What could one revisit and update and so on? So I've started to think about that, but maybe that's something to have a go at. Um, and then I've been putting it off forever, but a book, um, you know, the, all the wonderful sessions that Steve and uh, Insu did at, uh, at Brief with clients, that those, those really do need to be transcribed and got out to the world. And I keep promising myself to do it, but I never get around to it, of course. So, um, but yeah, that would be a, <laughs> an idea for another book. But I think on the whole, um, I feel quite comfortable about what we've, we've produced in the writing. I mean, last year I had that book, or the late year before, with uh, Yasmin Ajmal and working in schools, and I've spent a lot of time in, in schools, or one school particularly, um, over many, many years, decades. So I, I felt that that was something I really wanted to contribute something around solution focus in schools. So um, you know, I feel I've ticked some of the, uh, the, the, well, the technical things I really wanted to make sure I, I'd done my bit on. So uh, Evan and Chris might have their own thoughts about what we could still, or they could still produce, but I feel as if I feel quite good about what we've managed to, to do so far. Yeah. There's always new material. I mean, every every week, you know, you do another session with a client, you think, gosh, that's a, that was such an interesting session. I'd really like people to know about that. I'd mean, really like to know, people to know, you know, what the client said, how I came, how I had to deal with that. and gosh, I don't know if it's going to work, but this is really interesting stuff. So, yeah, you know that stuff. And it's just, um, yeah, if people find it interesting, but that brings it back to where I come from, which is that focus on the, the actual interview, the actual session with the client, the therapy, whatever you want to call it, that's the bedrock for me more than anything else. What's actually happening in that room and um, either looking at the tape or reading the transcript of it, that's where we get our learning about this work. So um, I'm still devoted to that. Hmm. Yeah. What's your next book going to be then? <laughs> Collaboration with you, I think. We'll just add another one to your list. <laughs> <laughs> but th thank you so much, Rob. You've been um, an inspiration to all of us, certainly. So, and Absolutely. thank you for your time today. Really appreciate well, it. Thanks for the invite. It's, it's been terrific. Thank you very much. And. Uh, yeah, hope people like listening to it and you carry on your good work and your, your writing and everything else and your teaching and spreading the word, which is how we started up 30 plus years ago. Let's get it out there. Let's, let's let people know about it. So um, yeah, keep on, keep on trucking with it. Great. <laughs>